Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. All right, good morning. Um, If you'll tell the person you're talking to, Malachi chapter 1. Malachi chapter 1, I think they'll get your hint. <laughs> Malachi 1, way back in the, the Old Testament. Old Testament scholar Walter Kaiser calls him uh, Malachi, the Italian prophet. <laughs> What's that? <laughs> I heard. <laughs> yeah, Malachi, the Italian prophet, or Malachi, better known in the, the church's and uh, he prophesies about 430 B.C. I know that rings a bell with all of your important dates, but um, if you're a history nerd, uh, you might know that this was right around the time that Plato was born, um, forever memorialized in his closet at a retailer near you. <laughs> Not Plato, <laughs> right? Uh, Pericles um, was responsible for the birth of democracy in Athens. It's near the end of his life. Thucydides and Herodotus were alive, and they were making history, literally, because they were writing it down. And then uh, this is about 50 years after the marriage of Esther to Xerxes in the Battle of Thermopylae, which followed a year later. Um, You'll probably remember that. That's where George Butler fought valiantly with the 300 against the Persians, Xerxes. And uh, all of that happened within about 50 years. At the end of, and it's at the end of Ezra and Nehemiah's ministries of restoration of the people to the land and the temple. And so you think about about 80 years. Um, oh, I wanted to mention this too. This is just a, a freebie. We sang Maranatha this morning. Um, if you don't know what Maranatha means, it means come Lord, come Lord. And uh, what brought that to mind is that uh, this church, I think um, we're in our 76th or 77th year um, in, of ministry as a church. And so if you think about from the time of Ezra and Nehemiah reestablishing temple worship, it's about 80 years until the time that uh, Malachi writes uh, to prophesies to the people of Jerusalem. He's a prophet in Jerusalem. And, and so everything that he discusses here, he sees he sees happening before his eyes within the temple complexes. When, when people go to church, he observed these things happening and had a word for them. And um, really, what this is all about is what is God worth? And we were we were singing a lot about that this morning about the worth of God. And um, you may know this that the old English word for for worship is worthship. It's declaring God's worth with our our lives and our actions and our words. And and hopefully, it's not just in words that there's something that needs to accompany our words to make that authentic. Right? It's not just us saying. Wow, God, you're worth a lot, but do our lives back up those words? Do we live in a way that express that God is really worthy? And and sometimes we see that we don't really give God the worship that he, he really deserves. Now, I want to take a little bit of the pressure off uh, this in a way right on the front end of it because in a way as human um, flawed people, can we really who who don't, don't have the full picture, can we really express what God is really worth? 
I think the question of that is probably no, but, but can, we, can we express it in the way that he desires? Yes, I think we can. And so um, he requires or desires, and those two things overlap. He desires a kind of worship that, that honors his name. And often what we find happens is that we use the front end of our lives for ourselves and we use the leftovers for him. And I want to challenge that a little bit this morning. If you're nervous about that, this is a good time to get up and go because uh, there's some serious business in this. But, but I think it's something we need to hear, and I think we'll, if we'll listen to what God has to say, I think we'll find that this, ought, this will improve our worship because we want to express worship in a way that says he's worthy of it. Look at the first five verses with me. In verse 1, it says, A prophecy, the word of the Lord uh, to Israel through Malachi, Malachi the prophet. And there's some debate about is Malachi uh, the name of the person, is a proper name, or is Malachi because it means the messenger of the Lord? Is this some kind of title that he's adopting? Um, and probably more conservative scholarship says, no, this, this is his name. His name is Malachi, and how fitting it is that he was both named messenger of the Lord, and he becomes a messenger of the Lord. And, and he's prophesying in Jerusalem, and he starts out with some first, uh, these first few verses, two to five, which might look like they're disconnected from what's coming next, but they really um, are important to what follows. Listen to this. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you have asked, how have you loved us? And um, when you read that, we probably need to read it with a little bit of a snarky tone, okay? Because it's like, have you loved us, really? Okay, that's the kind of tone that this takes. How have you loved us? And then God says through the prophet Malachi, was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? And yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have turned his hill country into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may be rebuilt, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord, you will see it with your own eyes and say, great is the Lord even beyond the borders of Israel. Now, there's some interesting theology here, and we can't take a lot of time to get into it, but one of the things that comes out of this is that God is big beyond our borders, and he can do amazing things wherever he wants to. How many understand that? That that sometimes we kind of border in our lives, or we put God in a box and put boundaries around what he can do, and he's much bigger than that, and he's capable of working outside of our parameters. Now, I'm not suggesting he's inconsistent. I'm suggesting that we don't have the full picture of what he's like. We have what he's shown us of what he's like. But but he is big, and he can do things in places where we might say, that looks impossible, or God doesn't work there. And he can uh, certainly work in that way. Now, that's kind of a, a nice theological thought. But, but think about this. What is Malachi trying to do? Because in the next verses, he's going to come back and he's going to address Judah's worship, the way that they're worshiping. And the thing that they've said is, how have you loved us? And maybe this is a question that, if we're honest with ourselves, been on our heart once or twice. Like, God, you say you love me, but where is your love? Where's your love for me? And uh, I would suggest to you that a good starting place for any Christian is that uh, his love is expressed in the cross of Christ, okay? So let's just get that right out of the way so that we can know if we get into a moment where we're in questioning of God's love, it's been demonstrated. Romans 5.8 says that uh, God demonstrated his own love for us in this, Christ died for us. 
This is the demonstration, okay? This is proof of his love for us. And John 3.16 actually says it, though we sometimes translate it or understand it in a little bit different way. When it says, God so loved the world, actually in that verse, in the original, at the beginning it says, so as the starting word, and it means in this way God loved the world that he gave his only son. This is his expression of love, is giving Jesus for you and me. So we need to understand that the the proof is already there, but we haven't always haven't always bought in because maybe we don't, we're not feeling it on a particular day. But his proof is there, and I think that's so important enough to say it again and again. So they're asking that question. Jesus Jesus hasn't died on the cross yet. They're asking for proof of God's love, and so God points them back through the prophet Malachi to a kin, a kinsman or a near people to them. Remember, Abraham had a son. He had more than one, but the promised son was what? What was his name? What was Abraham's son's name? Isaac, okay? And then Isaac had two boys, twins, Jacob and Esau, right? And so they, they went along. They had some troubles between them. Jacob being the younger, he finagled his way into the blessing and into the birthright, and he ended up being, in the end, the one that God did bless. And so he and Esau had kind of a, a tenuous relationship with one another, didn't they? And not only did they have it during their lifetime, but after their lifetime, the, the Edomites, who are the descendants of Esau, lived in a near proximity to God's people, Israel. And so when they came out of, um, they came out of Egypt, of course, they had to, to go through that area where the Edomites were. And then especially important to this message is when God sent judgment upon his people Judah uh, in the form of the Babylonians, the Edomites joined in with the Babylonians against their relative Israel. And God said, I will not let them be guiltless for this. I will destroy them and wipe them out. And that's what this promise is talking about is because they were, even though they were within the family of blessing, God is saying, I've given you preferred place. Do you see that? So you say, I'm not uh, loving you, but look, I judged them, and I'm going to completely destroy them. I've judged you, but I've returned you to the land. My faithful love is shown in the fact that even though I've disciplined you, I brought you back to a place where you could be blessed again in the land. Okay, So that's the proof of love in this passage. They said, you haven't loved us. How have you loved us? You, you sent us into captivity. You know that the Bible says that, the Lord's discipline is a father's love to us, right? That he disciplines those whom he loves. And so the, the fact that they came back from captivity while Esau, when they got punished, there's not going to be a national recovery like there is for Israel. And so Malachi is pointing out the fact that you are, and there is proof of it, you are God's chosen people, and he set his affection upon you, and he's loved you, okay? So... This misconception of God's love has practical outworkings. Do you know that when we have wrong theology, it works out in our lives and wrong practices? It's true. When we don't, we don't have the right understanding of what God is like, it affects how we do things. And the way that this affected that is they, they misunderstood God's love, and it affected their worship. Okay? They didn't think God was worthy because they didn't think God really loved them. Like, the the ancient concept was for many people the god who is most powerful will cause their armies to win in battle okay 
So if you have that concept and you're part of the Israelites, think about this for a moment. If you get defeated in battle, if you have that understanding, what does that say? It says the other gods are more powerful than your God. Well, we have a different reason for understanding why Israel went into captivity. It was because they had disobeyed God and it was actually his sovereign hand that was arranging all of that. But they didn't quite understand that God works in ways that sometimes don't make sense to us. But when we have all of the details and we know what he's about, that he's trying to accomplish something. They didn't understand that, and it affected their worship. Look at how it does this in verse uh, 6 and following. A son honors his father and a slave his master. If I'm a father, where is the honor that's due me? And if I'm a master, where is the respect due me, says the Lord Almighty? It is you priests who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? By offering defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we, de- how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you offer blind animals for sacrifice, what's wrong? I- excuse me, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he say to you, would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Now plead with God to be gracious to us with such offerings from your hands. Will he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Verse 10, oh, that one of you, listen to this, would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I'm not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offering from your hands. My name will be great among the nations from where the sun rises to where it sets in every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to me because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. But you profane it by saying the Lord's table is defiled and its food is contemptible, and you say, what a burden, and you sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. What a burden, right? And when you bring injured, lame, or diseased animals and offer them as sacrifices, should I... Not ex- should I accept them from your hand, says the Lord. Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and who vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared among the nations. Now, it sounds a little harsh, but, but I think what's happening here is that God who has given his, himself without reserve to his people, who has shown himself kind to his people, is a little offended that when it comes time for them to show his worth, people want to take shortcuts. People want to say, ah, what an obligation it is. What a duty it is. Okay, And so I think what God really wants to get at today is the heart with which we do things. I don't, I don't know that we're in the category of these people, but I think that sometimes there are things in our lives that are in proximity to this. Like when we we use up the best part of our life on the front end for ourselves, and then we give our leftovers to God. Do you know what I mean by that? I'll give some examples here in a moment. But, but these, these kinds of things happen. And God is saying to Israel, I've shown you special love, but you've not been willing to show me honor. You've shown me dishonor. There are some questions that are asked here. And, and the questions that kind of emerge from this that we ought to ask ourselves when it comes time to worship is, one, is God loving? Is God loving? Is he? And what proof, what proof has he given of that? And we, we see that he's demonstrated in the cross, but has he gone beyond that? Would you, would you be content with the fact that if God never did anything else for you, 
he loved you enough to provide the payment for our sins so that we could be reconciled to him. Like if he didn't heal our diseases, like they talk about in Psalm 103 or provide for our needs, is God still good if he didn't do any of that other stuff? I think so. I think as... I think we ought to understand that what he gave us in salvation is the best thing that could have ever happened to us. And then everything else is bonus thrown in on top of that. Come on, right? So if he never did anything again, God's still good. He's still good, and he's still shown his love for us. Is God loving? He certainly is loving. And the second question is, is God worthy of honor? Because what people are doing was dishonoring him. Is he worthy of honor? When we we come to worship um, with with what kind of approach do we come? Is it one of obligation where uh, this is my religious duty, I have to do this? Now, this isn't the way that we should approach the living God. This is the way that people approached gods in pagan religions. The way they did that, and sometimes people do it today in, in trying to serve God, is that it's an, it's an obligation that if I don't fulfill it, God's going to be mad and he's going to get back at me. So I have to do this bare minimal, not because I love him, not because I want to honor him or want to, but because if I don't, there will be negative consequences to it, okay? And there are negative consequences if we don't worship because we're made in such a way that we need God. We're derivative. We, we are dependent upon him for our existence. We're dependent upon him for direction in life and our well-being. Would you say amen to that, that we need him? We need him. And here's the other side of that, God doesn't need us. He doesn't need us. for his, he's, he's completely self-existent, but we need him. And one, one example that I often come to in this is that when we, uh, when we go about our, our life just in terms of biology, that we don't have self-sustaining life. Do you know that? We have to borrow life from other things, like donuts and cows and coffee, yeah, other things that give us life. And uh, because without those things, we deteriorate, right? And so we're borrowing, and that's just one aspect. The same is true spiritually, that we are dependent beings that rely upon a life source spiritually. And if we don't have that, we die. We need him, okay? So understanding that is important to worship just because it, it shows at the base of it what we need. But that's not really a great motivation. The greatest motivation for worship is that God is good and he is perfection in every way, right? Perfect in his goodness, perfect in his justice, perfect in his beauty. Um, whatever you can think of that is beautiful, okay? You fill in the blank there. Whatever you can think of, it's had its origin in God. Do you know that? And that he is, he's the one who's thought up all things, all categories of beauty. And he is, therefore, the culmination of all that's beautiful. And I think that's really important that we understand that in terms of goodness, he is at the pinnacle of goodness. Like if we, and there's beauty in goodness, isn't there? Like you met somebody probably in the past that there's something so pure about their life that it does one of two things. It inspires you and also in a way kind of makes you feel bad about yourself. Anybody know what I'm talking about? That both those things simultaneously can happen. And this is the beauty of God's moral character is that it both inspires us and it also says, woe is me for I'm undone. Because we've seen the beauty of him. 
So those are great motivations for worship. To, to worship out of a heart of love is the best motivation because we've seen something of what God is and that maybe we can't help but express his beauty. But instead, often what comes is dishonor in its place. And he mentions this. And then the other is that God, is God great? That's another question. Is God great? We um, usually break systematic theology into two categories. Systematic theology is what's when you discuss God, you, you understand that there, are, there can be categories of ways to describe God. And one of those major breaks in the categories is between his goodness and his greatness. And if you, you think about uh, a God who is good, you understand that he's good towards people, he's loving, uh, he's, he shows uh, kindness to us in practical ways. But it's also important that we understand that he's great, that that means he's powerful and, and he's capable and he knows all things and he's wise. And when those things come together and we understand he's both great and good, that's why we have the little kids prayer, God is great, God is good, because we're covering our bases in theology that we understand that both he's both great and he's good. And, and if you take away any side of that, you're in trouble. You know, if he's good but he's not great, he may have good wishes. You've met somebody who some kind of, uh, they're, they're powerless. They really want to do something, but they can't. They really are heartbroken that there's more that they want to do, but they can't. Okay? And then you've seen people that have all the power to do something, but they don't want to. They don't care. Okay? So what God does is he's got both the care and compassion, the love, the kindness, and the ability to do something. And in his greatness, part of his greatness is that his greatness needs to be known among the nations. But Malachi here writes to, speaks to, he's, it's written for us, the people of uh, Judah and saying that instead of showing God honor, the honor that he deserves, you've shown him dishonor. You've shown him dishonor. You've shown him contempt. And they say, well, how have we done that? And he speaks first to the priests and then then he talks about, he kind of includes everybody. The priests are offering bad sacrifice because the people are bringing bad sacrifices. And it could have stopped on either side. The priest could have said, I'm not going to offer this because you brought a blemished animal. When I know good and well that back home, you've got a good one. And by the way, the Lord, when he said you're to bring an animal, you're to bring one that's unblemished. Bring the best. Don't bring the, don't bring the scrawny little one that may not survive through the night. Bring your best because you're bringing it to the Lord and you're, you're making a value statement about in, in offering your sacrifice. Uh, and the, the priest could have said, nope, sorry, um, sorry, brother, but that's not going to fly. You need to go, go bring the good one. But they didn't. They went ahead and offered it. And then the people, they could have done it from their side. And then the priest wouldn't have had to say that to them. They could have just brought the very best that they had to offer and uh, everything would have been okay. But both of them were kind of in this cahoots, in cahoots with one another to do the bare minimal because, after all, worshiping God is kind of an inconvenience. We want to get about our lives. We want to do our thing. We want to build our personal kingdoms. And, and doing this God thing is a little bit of an inconvenience. And I want to tell you it's more inconvenient than we sometimes realize. Like In Old Testament religion especially, you see that people... Uh, especially the men, they had to make a pilgrimage at least one of the three times a year. And, and that sometimes meant a month or two off of work to go and to celebrate at the festival in Jerusalem. And 
sometimes we see it as a big, big drag if it's raining and we got to drive to church two miles. I live, what's that? Or if it's, or especially if it's sunny. I don't know if you've noticed this, but people drive worse when it's sunny than they do when it's icy. Has anybody noticed that besides me? It's like, we should drive faster because it's sunnier and there's no ice on the road. No, they're staring at the sun as if it's like, you know, a deer in headlights or something. Tractor beam pulling them in and causing them to drive slow. I'm sorry, I'm going to kick that soapbox over. But uh, you can see that they saw that it was an inconvenience, and so they didn't want to offer something better to the Lord. And so let me challenge you uh, this morning and myself that if we don't honor, it's because in some way we don't value. Honor, Honor is essentially showing value. When we honor, we show value. I value you in my life, God. I value you. If we don't honor, it's because... We don't value, and so they didn't value God because I think that they thought he didn't really love them. Maybe they were a little bit disappointed. Have you ever been disappointed with God? Like, this is what I thought would happen, but that's not the way you did it. And maybe it's not even expressed until just now. Maybe it's settling in. I've been disappointed with God. And if we don't deal with that and understand it's not God that needs to change, it's our expectations that need to adjust to who he is and that he's still good despite the fact it didn't go the way we wanted to. So they didn't honor God for that reason. And so God says to them, um, make some comparisons here. A son honors his father, okay? Just taking it down to the basic family level. And a slave his master, maybe in an economic kind of situation. But if I'm a father, where is the honor that's due to me? You don't even give me the honor that a son would give to his father. And if I'm a master, where is the respect due to me, says the Lord Almighty. So somewhere there's been a disconnect, and the proper honor is not shown. And I think it has to do with the fact that they had a wrong concept of what God was like. He says, you priests have shown contempt for my name. Contempt, this word for contempt means to despise or look down upon the name of God. You've looked down upon my name. Not only are we not offering the proper sacrifice, but this speaks to something that is kind of maybe hidden in their soul. Do you know that we can have hidden things in our soul? We can come to church and we can sing songs to God. And at the same time, we can be hiding some kind of a feeling in our heart towards God or about God or a thought about God that is not honoring to him. And so they had something, it seems to me, hidden in their soul where they were in contempt against God, and it began to work itself out because those things always do in how they lived. They despised and looked down on his name. And so notice uh, the next thing. Um, he says in verse 9 here, well, he talks about the things that they're bringing. I'm going to bring a New Testament application of this in just a moment. When you, How, are you, how have you shown me to be... Uh, contemptible. When you offer blind animals, is that not wrong? Because he already told them that they shouldn't do that. They should bring their best animals, an unblemished animal at least. When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering something to your governor. Okay, so we had father and son, or son honoring father, uh, slave and master. Now he's saying if you presented something even to a local politician, would he accept that? 
I mean, think about it and uh, about how we show honor and dignity to people who uh, we ought to respect. And he says, but you're not even willing to do that to me, to these people. Try offering your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept it, says the Lord Almighty? Now plead with God to be gracious to us. With such offering from your hands, will he accept you? And that's the thing that sometimes we don't understand is that we think a little is better than nothing. And that seems not to play out in um, our walk with God, that just a little is better than nothing. Maybe in a, a, some practical way that's true, but think about the, uh, the statement in Revelation where it says that you're neither hot nor cold because you're lukewarm, I, sp- I spit you out of my mouth. There's something about a half-hearted approach that is nauseating to God. And so he says to them, listen to this in verse 10, Oh, that one of you would just shut the temple doors. Do you hear this? That, like, it's better not to offer a sacrifice than to come and play a game where we say we're going to offer such and such a thing, but it's not really what pleases God. And that you would light useless fires on my altar. Like, if these sacrifices are not accomplishing what they're supposed to, what's the purpose of it? They're not acceptable. And then it speaks to how it doesn't show God as distinct. Look at verses. Um, look at verses. Verse eleven. My name will be great among the nations, from where the sun rises to where it sets. In every place, increase and pure offerings will be brought to me, because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. But you profane it by saying the Lord's table is defiled and its food is contemptible. And what a burden! And you sniff and say. Uh, It's contemptuous, says the Lord Almighty, when you bring these kinds of sacrifices. Now, I know that sounds heavy a little bit here. What he's saying is that I don't accept that half-hearted stuff. He wants all of us. So let me make that New Testament applications. We don't don't do the same kind of sacrifices they did in the Old Testament. We didn't bring um, animals to sacrifice. I'm glad. Um, And the reason for that is that Christ has offered a blood sacrifice in himself that's sufficient for all sacrifices to bring us into right relationship with with God, the Father. Are you with me? So Jesus did that. Amen? Okay. So he accomplished that for us. And uh, there were other kinds of sacrifices in the Bible besides atoning sacrifices. Did you know that? That there were not just sacrifices that a person offered in order to bring them into right relationship with God, but there were also sacrifices that were offered that declared God's worth. And so they would come and they would bring their gift to the Lord. And many times that was a, a burnt offering or some kind of a, um, an animal sacrifices. But those, those sacrifices, they didn't atone for sin. These are sacrifices of worship, things that declared God's worth. They were giving something up for God in such a way that it would show his value. It would show his value in their lives. It would declare what God is worth by showing that God is more important than other things in life. And this was done in the Old Testament by those animal sacrifices because apart from their a person's children, it was the most valuable thing to them. Are you, are you with me? There, we're talking about an agricultural culture where things um, in terms of value It was animals. It was the animals you had. That was the most valuable thing you had next to your children. And we know that offering the sacrifices of children was 
God would not allow it. And he only asked Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, but when the time came, he provided a substitute for it, right? And uh, he did this so that through all of Israel's history, he asked for every firstborn male to be substituted with some kind of a sacrifice. Did you know that? When Jesus was born, uh, when it came time to offer the sacrifices, we know that Mary and Joseph were poor because they brought the poor person's sacrifice, uh, two turtle doves to be sacrificed. Remember that? And so they offered this sacrifice in place of the firstborn son. It was a whole thing about recognizing God's value, that he's, he's more valuable even than their children. That's what this was about. He's more valuable even than the children. So he didn't allow for child sacrifice. Um, he provided a firstborn son. Excuse me. Uh, Isaac was not the only son of Abraham that God would have sacrificed, would have sacrificed. That was a later descendant of Abraham in Jesus, God's own son. And so he reserved the sacrifice of a son for that great sacrifice. But the worship sacrifice continues, but in a form that it was always intended to be, okay? It wasn't that God wanted animal sacrifice. Have you read the uh, verses in the Bible where it says that I don't desire the blood of bulls and goats? Have you read that? It was never his desire to have that. It's not as if in some pagan religions they have this belief that when you sacrifice the animal, the smoke vapor went up and fed the gods. God didn't need that. He, didn't, he wasn't fed on animal carcasses as it was supposed in pagan religion, what he wanted from them really the whole time was their heart. He wanted them to show that they valued him and honored him. And the one way to do that doesn't make as much sense to us because we, we live in sort of a monetary society and, and our agricultural portion is, is kind of on the side or on the peripheral to most of us. And so for them, though, this makes a lot more sense that they were giving what was of utmost value to them. It was like giving away, in a sense, their bank account. I'm not preaching on tithing here this morning, but this is part of, this is part of the point is that when they sacrificed their animal, it wasn't about the animal. It was about expressing value and worship to God. And so what kind of animal you brought was really important to what kind of value you said God had in your life. The sacrifice of worship then continues but in a different form. As I said, God didn't want the animal, but uh, it was what they represented, the best that people had to offer. And sadly, people missed the point, and they made it a matter of minimal obligation. For some, they found a way to give the minimum and still be, and still not be in trouble with God. Like, what can I give? Any, anybody grow up in church and, like, this was your approach to ethics? How much can I get away with before it's sin? Anybody know what I'm talking about? Like, what's the line? We want the line drawn. Well, already we've got a sinful inclination in our heart because we want to get, we want to do as much as we want to do, but maybe just not offend God. So we're looking for a line. And instead, our heart should have run towards God and said, what can I do to please you? Not what can I do not to be displeasing you, you know? Uh, and, and that would have been a whole different approach. But uh, people wanted to give the minimum and still not be in trouble with God. And so they gave animals that were sicklier or wounded, or spent, like they're old, uh, I don't know, I, I, think, I think I've been in some countries where uh, they ran the, the oxen to death, 
and then they slaughtered it, and we ate the meal afterwards. Anybody know what I'm talking about? But it's like at the end of it all, and then we'll just see what else we can get out of this. And, and I understand that because many times that's what they had. But I, I think that uh, this is kind of the way they approached giving to God. This animal was spent. Animals you wouldn't want to eat. You wouldn't want to keep. You wouldn't want to sell. Not the best. And so that was their, that was their approach. And, and it left God hurt and angry with them because they weren't showing their gratitude for what he'd done for them, and they weren't showing his worth. And not only that, but it affected their witness because he says, my name will be great among the nations. And the question is, if God's own people don't honor him as great, how can we expect his name to be great in the world? Right? If we we have so little value, we're looking to do the bare minimal, why should we expect somebody to want to come in and turn to the God that we say is so great? And so he was offended by that and saying that my name is going to be great on the earth, and those true worshipers are going to be worshipers that declare my worth. So what is the application for us? Because we're not bringing animals. I think it's it's this, that if we use up our lives, we have no energy left for serving God. What does it say about God's worth? You know. And if we use all of our finances to build our own little kingdom and have nothing except leftovers for the kingdom of God, what does it say about God's place in our lives? And uh, we give all of our focus and work and to, to work and sports and school, and we don't make church a priority. What does it say about our value for God? See, we have ways of doing the same thing that Malachi is addressing. We can put other things in the place. And occasionally um, here at church we'll get calls from people who want to give something to the church. And um, they might say it's something like, you still have some life left. And that's always a red flag. I'll tell you, when we were youth pastors, somebody somebody gave us a, a couch for our youth center. And we found out after they dropped it off that it had mice in it. And uh, so we inquired a little more about it. We found out that it had been sitting in their field. And they didn't want it in their field anymore. So give it to the youth center. And so <laughs> we didn't know about it. I think... Uh, I think one time we had a, a lock-in or something, or maybe some family was visiting. We needed an extra place, and <laughs> somebody ended up sleeping on that couch. But I think it's uh, that's <laughs> kind of the approach that sometimes people take about giving things to God. Is like it's, and I don't want you to hear me as saying I'm ungrateful when people have something that's used that we need. That's that's important. That's fine. It's like when the attitude is it's either the church or the trash. You know what I mean? There's something wrong with that approach that we don't need anymore. We're never going to use it. It's junk, but maybe the church can use it. And that's to me, says something about how we value the things of God. And I think there ought to be uh, the kind of approach that says, what can, I, what can I give that expresses God's worth? And so th- I think there's something wrong with that other kind of idea. The sacrifice of worship uh, in New Testament terms, and I think this is true in Old Testament terms, but there was a, the Old Testament you'll find is very a very tangible kind of religion, okay? So it's the same, but they used a lot of object lessons. So sacrifice was an object lesson. It was to show I'm giving something of value to God. There's something in my place, okay? But it was symbolic 
when they gave an animal, they, they were really giving themselves. That's the way it should have been. But people sometimes disconnected from that and said, well, I'm giving the animal instead of myself. Like in the sense of, if I do this obligation, I don't really have to be devoted to God. And that's not what it was ever about. But in the New Testament, we hear it applied a little bit differently, a little more thoroughly, I think. It's there in the Old Testament, especially as you get to the minor prophets. They're unpacking all of that, and they're saying things like, um, um, I've never desired the blood of bulls and goats, and, you know, do you think that this is what pleased me? What I really want is your heart, you know? What does the Lord require? It's not all of this. It's that he wants us to be devoted to him. In Romans 12.1, it says, therefore, and I, I would encourage you to turn there. Romans 12.1, I want to point out a couple things, and this is the home stretch here. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. This is your true and proper worship. Okay? So the word for worship that's used here, if you're looking at your Bible there in Romans 12, verse 1, the word that's used for worship, your translation might have service there. Um. I don't know of any other options off the top of my head. There's usually worship or service. And this is uh, a special word that, that often is used for the sacrificial type of service to God. Okay, so in the sacrificial system, they would have talked about this being worship when they offered their animal. And they would have used, especially in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, they would have used this word for worship. It would have had carried the, the idea of we're offering an animal sacrifice. It would have carried that thought kind of with it. And so he's saying this, instead of offering any kind of animal sacrifice, Jesus has already paid the biggest price. What's your proper response to that? Okay, What's your proper response? And the proper response is, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice to him. Okay, So the word for worship here is related to that sacrificial worship in which people brought their sacrifice as an expression of God's worth in their lives. This good animal, this good animal that I could get a lot of money for at the market, this good animal that we would love to eat, this good animal that could serve our lives if we just had it among our other animals in different ways. It would serve us to hang on to this. Our lives would be richer in a way, but instead I'm giving this up to the Lord because he's worthy of it, okay? That's the Old Testament way. The New Testament understanding of that is this body, this person that I am, all of my life, everything that I am, I could use it for myself. I could keep it back. I could, I could um, use it for building my kingdom. I could use it for doing what I want to do. I could spend it on leisure. Instead, I'm giving this life over to him, this is your reasonable worship. Okay, this is what he's saying. So in, in Malachi, Judah's worship suffered because they didn't think highly of God. How have you loved us? They said, how have you loved us? Well, I didn't destroy you when I could have destroyed you, and I did that to other nations. Instead, after disciplining you, I restored you. I've shown you love. Therefore, you should offer a worthy sacrifice. Okay, in the New Testament. How have I loved you? Romans chapter 12 starts with, in view of God's mercies. Okay? He's reflecting back on everything that's written in the book of Romans up to chapter 12. 
and that is God's mercy, where he saved us, though we didn't deserve it. We spent our lives on sin. He rounded us up, and he brought us into the corral, right, into the kingdom of God. He made us part of his family. He lavished us with his love. He gave us his kindness. He forgave us of our sins. He continues to walk with us in close personal relationship. He brought us into the family and became our father. He put his Holy Spirit in our lives, and we're never alone. This is all part of God's mercy. I mean, it's there, Romans 8. That's, figure that out, right? That the Holy Spirit lives in us. Okay? This is God's mercy. In view of God's mercy, respond with wholehearted worship. All of our lives being given over to him. This is how we do it. This is the, the language of this verse is in view of God's mercy. This is your true and proper worship. Our whole our whole selves. I think it's interesting here that the word for uh, offer in Romans 12 is in a, a tense that suggests that that it doesn't have time associated with it. Like it's not having offered yourself past tense. It's not offer yourself in the future in some kind of way. It just says offer. And it's, it's as if this, this uh, challenge to us remains constant. We need to continually be offered to God and let that be the state of who we are. Not like, am I going to offer myself to the Lord today? We might have to do that psychologically. Like, we might have to wake up one day and realize we've been a little bit selfish and, okay, I'm offering myself to the Lord. But shouldn't this kind of be the tenor of our whole lives to be, to be an offering to the Lord? Are you with me? This is kind of the... The direction of our lives is our whole selves offered to God, including the best of ourselves, our present and future selves, and our past selves. Okay? Now, you know what that means? That means, like, whatever past sins we had, that's his as well. He bought it. Do you know what I mean by that? I don't mean that he wanted it. I mean that he didn't want us to have it. He took it away. Okay, so that's his. It's not yours. He took it away. He took your place. The way that Paul describes it in 2 Corinthians 5 is that he who knew no sin was made sin for us. He took our sin upon himself and carried it to the cross and were reconciled to God as a result of it. So all of that belongs to the Lord. So my question today is do we bring our lives and have, do we bring our lives and offer them completely to God, or are we asking God to endorse the life we want? See, we could make some gains in worship today. I, I was thinking about some practical ways this plays out, and I'm going to confess to you something. I was telling our leadership team the other day that during VBS, um, I played Joseph. That's my confession. <laughs> it wasn't. That's not it. Anyway, I was downstairs in that hot room, and if you were there, you went through the seventh level of <laughs> wherever. It was experiencing Egypt, right? It was hot down there, and I, I'm, I'm telling you that um, we got we got into it, and usually the first one you're kind of getting excited about, and then there's the second one. We had five rotations, and so we're doing the same thing five times at different levels of intensity, different kids. At different ages, 
And it's hard. I'm here to tell you it was really hard, and I want you to pity me for that. I'm just kidding. <laughs> now, I would get through one and two and then three, and by about the third one, I, I would say to Trenton, how many, how many more do we have left? <laughs> and I was feeling like, at that point, I'm just trying to get through it. Okay? And I was saying to the team the other day, I said, that really wasn't the greatest motivation just to get through something. And I felt a little convicted about it afterwards, and I wrote a sermon to myself. And uh, the sermon is that we don't just get through things, we give God our best and all of that. And I was challenged by that. And so that's my confession, and that's my challenge to us, is that we're not, we're not just getting through life either. We're giving God our best. We want to glorify Him with it. And so when we come, like on Sunday morning to worship, I know, we've had busy weeks, and usually when it's sunny, we want to spend all day on Saturday outside. And a lot of times we can get to the end of those days and maybe even press into the night, and then we're super tired on Sunday morning, and we have very little to offer God. And I'm not trying to regiment you. I think you need to be, the, you need to be in charge of your own spiritual life in that regard. But, but what do we need to do to offer our best to him? We can spend all of our lives focusing on one thing. Well, let, let's think about education, okay? Sometimes it bothers me when, you know, I hear parents will put the utmost in their kids' school education, but they don't care about their Christian education. Like, this is, a, this is more important even than what they learn in school. But they won't get graded for it. <laughs> it's the biggest test of all. Like, we stand before the eyes of God. And I'm not suggesting to you, it's not my words, I'm saying to you, the Christian education is the most important. I'm not saying the other educations are not important. They are. I think they're all important. In fact, I, I probably value them as much as any Christian does. But how much more, can you, you see what I'm saying? I'm not devaluing. I'm saying how much more is important that we know the things of God that are going to be eternal, right? The principle is what lasts the longest is the most important. And it's our knowledge of God that's going to last longer than all of it. And so it's going to be the most important. I've gone on longer than I wanted to here. But there are other ways that this plays out. We can, we can give in ways that are half-hearted. I remember hearing a story of Billy Graham giving the offering, and he reached in his pocket and was going to give a dollar, and he ended up putting a 20 in, I think it was. And he was telling his wife on the way home, oh, man, I gave away, <laughs> I gave away $20. So that is a shame because you only got credit for one. <laughs> Right? Because that's where his heart was. He was to just give the one away. So I think that's, that's sometimes how it is, is, that we have the wrong motivation. This is not a, a message to try to say you need to give this much or in this way. God gets all of it. Okay? God gets it all. And then how that's played out, that's up to him. But are we giving him our best? Because he's worthy of it. If anything... Let us hear this, because I think probably many of us are on the same page with this. We may just, some of us may need a reminder of it. I did during VBS. Um, we need a reminder of this. Our heart is to do this. I'm not saying to, a, to you, you're a bunch of people who are rebels, and we're not getting this down. I'm saying, look, let's just check ourselves here and ask ourselves, are we giving God what he's, what he's worthy of? Are we honoring him? Are we saying... In what we do, are we saying to the world, he's worthy of my all? 
or are we saying that this is kind of a weekend thing that I do every once in a while? This is something that we talk about, but it's really not the centerpiece of our lives. That, I think, uh, deserves us to challenge ourselves. And God's Word is good about doing that. I felt um, God had this message for us this morning. And so maybe today you feel it's very imminent, like it's immediate. God needed to say that to you. Maybe today you're saying, well, yeah, I know that. Um, But I would encourage you, put that on the shelf. Maybe it's something that God needs to continue to work on us with. Amen. Stand with me if you would. Thanks for your gracious attention today. I think a good way to respond to this is to ask the Lord to shine his light in our heart. We're not always a great judge of this because I found out something about people in the time I've pastored. It's a good thing. Um, is that we can see through all the excuses of everybody else, but we're masters of making our own excuses. Isn't that true? Like we can we can excuse ourselves for things that we would never let other people get away with. And so my challenge to you would be to say to the Holy Spirit, Lord, you know me better than I know myself. Is there an area where this applies, where I'm giving you a half-hearted service or I've not surrendered all of me or I've not given you the best? If so, would you show me? And I, I want to repent of that, and I want, I want you to be honored with my life. Lord, is there an area that I'm sending a message to my kids, to the world, to my friends, that you're not really worthy of full devotion, you're worthy of part of it? Would you ask the Holy Spirit to speak to you about that and to deal with you on that? And um, maybe you need to, today you just need to worship the Lord and say, Lord, it's all yours. You're already in that place where you're doing that. It's not a matter of saying, Lord, I'm sorry for this. It's a matter of giving him the worship he deserves. Maybe there's something he wants you to do. Would you give him all of it? These altars are open if you'd like to come. If you'd like to remain at your seat and pray, go ahead and do that. But let's take a couple minutes before we leave to respond to the Lord. We're not, uh, in giving our all to God, we're not buying our salvation or earning it in any way. This is all response, right? It's the response of worship that says, Lord, in, in view of all you've done, take everything that I am and use it for your glory. That's a response. That's not a purchase. It's not you in any way buying your salvation. Let's offer our best. Let's give him our best. When it comes time to spend time with the Lord, like in the morning or whenever it is that you do that during the day, don't give him leftovers. Give him the best. When it's time to give of your gift, give him the best. When it's time to offer your energy and your time, give him the best. He'll be honored by that. And it'll also say something to other people. If you want your kids to get a message about who God is and what he's like, what he's worth, give your best and they'll see that. And it'll go along with your words and it'll make a big impression. Father, thank you, Lord, for this word, this reminder. I pray that nobody here would leave with a negative taste in their mouth about this. As you're speaking to us about this, let us be challenged that you are so good and so worthy of it. Help us to open our eyes to the greatness of who you are and the goodness of what you've done. And so that in response to that, as we, we offer our gift to you, that it would be a gift that's given with joy and without reserve. In Jesus' name we pray.
Amen. God bless you. Thanks for being here today. We'll see you on Wednesday. Thank you for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you are blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.